And, and so their response in Surah 2, 88, they say, our hearts are wrappings which preserve Allah's word. We need no more. Nay, Allah's curse is on them for their blasphemy. Little is it they believe, he says. But, but notice what the common Christian response was because these people were largely illiterates. And their response was, we don't need your book because our relationship with God isn't based on a book. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover what's really wonderful about the gospel. We're in a series called Recovering Faith. And we're in this section of the series called Saved for What? So there's three sections. Saved from what? Saved how? Saved for what? Last week in episode 11, we said that we were saved in order to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I recommend listening to last week's episode. That's 11. Go get that one for a fuller explanation. But basically what we said is that we need to recognize that God saved us. Point number one, God saved us to live in community with one another, but free individually from being controlled by others or controlling others. Free to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ with voluntary sacrificial love. And this is how we worship God and demonstrate to the world what God is like in his Trinitarian community of love. Yeah, that that was a takeaway from last week that um, I think really enjoyed was that, that picture uh, that we discussed about how the nature of, of God, the triune God, is this vibrant, dynamic uh, relationship that's happening between Father, Son, and Spirit and this kind of mutual community of love. And, and so uh, what you know, God is, has made possible and is inviting us into through, um, through Christ and through, through the gospel, drawing us into that same relationship that God has always had within um, himself. And so um, that's really far out. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of an amazing thing. It's not, um, I think so often, maybe in, in church, we get this sense that God's saving us to put us to work in a way we talk about, okay, you know, we're supposed to go into all the world and make disciples and, uh, you know, baptize people and get out and preach the word and, and do all this stuff, which is great. Um, but it kind of fosters a sense that God saved us to, for us to be his minions, you know, to go out, and, <laughs> you know, and, and take over the world for him. But um, I, I think the, the bigger picture is that God is saving, has saved us for himself and he's drawing us into this community of divine love and divine communion that's already inherent within the, the, the Trinity. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, if if it if he saved us to make disciples, then it just becomes a Ponzi scheme, doesn't it? Because it doesn't really ever pay out. It's a pyramid scheme. Like we're just recruiting people to become recruiters, and we never really have a product that is worth having. Um, and that's I think what is the weakness of some of the disciple making movements and things like that is is that. We become disciples to make disciples, but what is it that we're? What is the the experience of being a disciple? Why be a disciple? Um, if it's just to make disciples, then it's a pyramid scam. Uh, if there's actually an, an experience to be had, if there's some change that's worth undergoing, then we don't have to tell people to share it. You know, if this is. If this is the cure for spiritual cancer, then um, nobody has to cajole us or um, assign us any tasks in terms of, of telling others about it. We just will. Um, so that's really, that's good. And it's insightful. And, you know, when Jesus comes back, there won't be anybody preaching the gospel. Uh, we'll all just be celebrating it. We'll be singing it and rejoicing in it. And, um trafficking in it but no one it won't be new news to anyone so we better find some other basic essence 
of this experience besides making disciples. So, which is what? What is that basic essence? Is it love? Yeah, it's becoming a community of love. Um, and Paul talks about, and and we'll talk about this more. But Paul talks about the purpose, God's purpose, in all of this. So we tend to look at things like in the Gospels, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we tend to look at um, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, like Rick Warren, or like other churches. So we say, well, it's love each other, and it's proclaim the gospel. And that's true. But in Ephesians 3 verse 10, Paul gives us the mission statement of the church. He says that his purpose was that now um, that through the church, his glory would be made known, his wisdom uh, would be made known to the powers and authorities in the universe, right? So there's this, that the church is to become this kind of stupefying paradox, <laughs> you know, these lowly simian creatures who are receiving the divine spark, <laughs> you know, these hostile tribal beings who are becoming one nation, that all of this that shouldn't be true is becoming so because of this message, and that as it becomes so, all of the watching celestial beings, the forces and powers in the universe are standing jaw agape at uh, the genius of God who can do such a thing as this. So that we are included in the divine community is the very scandal of it is the purpose, is the reason. And, um, and so I, I think that ought to take up our attention and our efforts that we should be thinking in terms of how are we becoming one across the various divides of the world? That should be, maybe that should be paramount. Um, I used to never think so, but when you really get into Ephesians, uh, and I don't know, did we talk about Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 18 last time? I know you cited Ephesians. I don't know what verses you cited. Yeah, um, so just for, uh, in just risking the danger of, of repeating, um, here's what I want us to do. I want to, I'm going to read this, and I want you to listen for any place where there's a numeric reference, a, num, a reference to an amount of something, mm -hmm. okay? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose... His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Hmm. What numerical references did we get? I counted eight. If uh -huh. you include the word both as mm -hmm. another way of it saying is. two, it is. I counted eight references. And the numbers we had were? Two and one. Two and, and one. And that's it. And so you go to Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. Mm -hmm. So there is this miracle that's going on where wherever there is two, they are becoming one in Christ. And the reason for that, now let's read it again, and I want you to listen for any reference to God the Trinity. Okay? And, uh, and just maybe stop me and, and we'll identify <coughs> who's being spoken of, which which member of the Godhead is being spoken of. Okay, I'm going to back up to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, oh, that's Jesus. obvious, right? Second person. You, you were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. 
There's, mm-hmm. there's the first person. Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Yeah, there's the third person. You see that this incredibly Trinitarian passage, for even in New Testament terms, this is a very, it's a high concentration of Trinitarian language really throughout the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians has seven specific mentions of the Trinity, which is more than I've found, at least per line or per chapter, uh, you know, in any book of the Bible. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this frequent mention of the Trinity is in a book that is about Jew and Gentile coming together into one. When Paul speaks of the great mystery hidden for the ages, and we think, man, this must be some erudite insight, right? What does he say then? He says, in reading this in Ephesians 3, 4, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Cue spooky music, which has not been made known to people of other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are the heirs together with Israel. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but that's huge. Right. I mean, it's such a pedestrian thing. You two get along. I mean, can, can we even begin to fathom the, the, just the complete blasphemy that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour? Mm-hmm. Because the implication of Paul's words is not just that Jews and Gentiles should get along with one another, but also different Gentile groups should get along with one another. It, it, any Anything that would divide us from being one in Christ is fair game for getting its, its dividing walls knocked down, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. How do we express that in the world? Right, that's huge. Do we I mean, just looking through human ministry? history, human yeah. history. I mean, like all the um, destruction, wars, conflicts, mm-hmm. everything, just uh, from people um, dividing and attacking each other. Um, even just right now in our country, the political ill will and divisions this the stuff perpetuates itself and goes on and suddenly you know the gospel is not just about saving us it's about bringing all of humanity together in a way that it's actually possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. saving us saving us out of ungodly society to be a godly society yeah in the world right and in a society that is inherently diverse and insists on diversity, um, Paul was vehement against the Gentiles receiving circumcision. Let that sink in for a minute. They're being invited to become Israel, but they must come as Gentile Israel that there is a retention of one's cultural distinctives in the midst of this. And that's why this is um, an amazing mystery. It's not that people are being assimilated. That is something you can do anywhere, any place, any time. We can absorb another people group and force them to conform. That is the way of the world. That's, uh, you know, when Paul says, don't be conformed to the way of this world, right? To the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Part of this transformation is this insistence that we be together in this body of mutual respect, love, affirmation, and that we retain our distinctives on the way in. So you get over to Romans 14, which I think is an outgrowth of this transformed mind. And he says, receive one another, but not to debates over your particular scruples, right? So there, there is this, in the gospel, there is this transcendent truth that is that triumphs over all. 
without a need to quash those other matters, right? Okay, now that's going to lead us to today's episode, episode 12. Because our next logical step to understand obedience to Jesus, our king in this new realm of his kingdom, where we are no longer under law. So we're, we're in this new kingdom and Jesus is our king. And what does it mean to obey our king? Right. So that leads to episode 12, obeying the gospel. Sounds like a strange way to say it. Mm -hmm. Most of us didn't grow up hearing about obedience to the gospel. Right. What are we talking about when we talk about obedience to the gospel? Yeah. So that's a phrase that's used two times in the New Testament in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 4, both in reference to the day of judgment, saying that Jesus will come and he will execute wrath on those who do not obey the gospel. Now, coming out of the Church of Christ, we were looking for a good verse to tell people, you're going to go to hell if you don't get baptized. And so we, we interpreted that to mean um, getting baptized. But the problem is, is that baptism is not mentioned in either of those passages, and it's spoken of in the active indicative verb tense, which means when Jesus comes back, you need to be obeying the gospel, not did you have your card punched at baptism, but are you obeying? You know, in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse eight, he says Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. So is Jesus going to go? Did you know God? Right? And, and you're like, yes. From 1998 to 1999, I knew God. Come on in. Right? Um, and he's not going to say, did you obey the gospel? And I was like, yes. In 1987, June 1987, I obeyed the gospel in baptism. Come on in. That that is not that the tense that the sense and the tense there is when he comes. Do you know God? Are you obeying? That the gospel is something to be obeyed. Now, I would say that baptism is an instance of obeying the gospel because it depicts the death and resurrection of Jesus, according to Paul in Romans 6. And he says that, hey, you were once slaves to sin. Thanks be to God that you have now, you have now conformed or obeyed the pattern of teaching that you've received. So there's a pattern that we're supposed to be following. What is this pattern? I think it's death and resurrection. You're right. Right, you are. Oh, good. I got, yeah. I got a right answer. Right. Ding, Romans, ding, six, ding, ding. Romans 6, he's saying you obeyed the pattern. You died and you rose. Congratulations. Now keep obeying the pattern. This hour, next hour, today, tomorrow, the next day, die and rise is okay. the pattern. So those verses and what you're saying uh, to comment on those verses suggest that we're under obligation to obey, not the Bible, right. but the gospel. Most Christians believe they're under obligation to obey the Bible. Mm-hmm. We're making the argument time and time again in our podcast that we're actually under obligation to obey the gospel. And this right. is not a new law because it's not law. The gospel, uh, it, it's the law of faith. Right. It's the law, it's, it's a law that isn't law. <laughs> yeah. We are under obligation. Right. Yes, yeah, to obey something, but the the gospel becomes this story. It informs our worldview, and we are called to live in concert with its implications. What does it say about reality, and how can we live in harmony with the gospel definition of reality? So when Jesus says, you will know the truth, and we said this last time, the truth in the ancient world wasn't just facts. It was in concert with base reality. And Jesus is saying, you will understand the essence of reality. You will know base reality. And because you know that, you will be able to live a free life. That there's no need for prescriptions if you understand the basic concepts of cause and effect, consequence um, in the spiritual realm. And the gospel is the articulation of that. It sets us free to live in that. And back to the point of it facilitating this vision for community of people becoming one in the midst of diversity, the gospel becomes this very small standard, this very light and portable standard that applies to every human circumstance, but can be 
demonstrated in, in an infinite number of ways based on your culture. So uh, the Jew, Jewish people uh, often talk about the considering the Torah as turning the diamond. So there's this precious jewel that has facets and as you change your perspective, you see a different um, light, light, ray of light coming through, right? Well, the gospel is that. The Torah is not because the Torah is too big. If you try to follow Torah, uh, right, 613 laws, um, man, that's not a diamond. That's just like a truck. <laughs> you know, that's something. It's so big that, and there's so much room for disagreement, interpretation, that it necessarily creates factions and sects as people differ over how to apply it. And the Torah doesn't, and your point has been that it's not just the Torah that does that, but it, right. but the New Testament also does that. And we see that in church history. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it should have taught us something when Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli couldn't get together. Right. So there were 10 years, 15 years into the Reformation, and we've decided that we should listen to the Bible and not the church. And you've got two very intelligent, well-meaning people who've actually faced the fires of persecution and tempted death. Okay, so we're not talking about one honest guy and one dishonest guy. We're not talking about a, uh, an idiot and a well-informed person. We're talking about two highly intelligent, highly informed, very committed people who have the same document that they're looking at. And they cannot agree. And because of that, they cannot be in one body. And the very purpose of the gospel is lost 15 years into the reformation enterprise and from there because they split over the meaning of the lord's supper well yeah, yeah. It's that suddenly um unity became not you know the death and resurrection the body of christ it became my interpretation of scripture which we right. still see today you know very, very much we fight and you know uh, wrestle with each other with within the Protestant church over mm -hmm. the correct interpretation of scripture, because really deep down inside, we think that's what it means to obey God. Right. Yeah. And we certainly can't put up with anybody who is disobedient to God. And by disobedient to God, I mean, who disagrees with me. Um, and to be honest, when you come at a doctrine and a written document, there are no two people who agree on any written document. It's why we have this massive legal system and all these lawyers and Supreme Court and all this. And I mean, Supreme Court decisions even. We need to have nine justices because only five of them can agree on this. If we can get five of them to agree, we can we can hand down a ruling. So we're, in, we're assuming that people don't agree on law, that law is inherently divisive. Written so, documents, prescriptions. Right. This is law, broadly speaking. Right, yeah. Uh, Romans 15, 7, uh, Paul says something that is very powerful. He says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How did Christ accept you? How do we expect Christ will accept somebody? Will they need to become a New Testament scholar and answer, you know, write a thesis and, and get the right doctrine on eschatology, you know, uh, accept one another if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture as Christ accepted you because of you believe, you believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. How can we begin to reject one another over matters that were not part of Christ's acceptance of us? That seems like we are trying to throw the lamb off the throne. And we're saying, no, I'll, I'll, I'll adjudicate this one, Jesus. I think I've got a pretty good grasp on New Testament doctrine. Um, Jesus accepts us on the basis of faith. And Paul says, when we do that, in spite of our differences over important matters, like whether to eat meat that was offered in sacrifice to a pagan god, that seems important. At least it was to them in that day. It's critical. They were like, are you going to be like Daniel or are you going to be like those who gave in and participated in the pagan culture of Babylon? That was the difference. You know, remember in, in Daniel chapter uh, 2, Daniel decides, or chapter 1, I can't remember, you look it up. Anyway, um, 
Daniel decides that him and his friends that they're going to only eat vegetables. Well, that's a big sacrifice, right? <laughs> you know, because and it wasn't just that it was you know pork and lobster. It was that this meat is offered in sacrifice to pagan gods. They didn't want anything to do with the paganism of the culture that they were a part of. It was about remaining holy. And now here comes Paul and he says, well, look, some of you guys have a hangups on this and some of you don't. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Um, you know, the, uh, if you really want to get uh, particular about it, I would say that he would say that those who eat meat are better off than those who don't because they have actual faith in the gospel and you're still trusting in your works. Yikes. And he said that. He upended it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he's saying, but but don't try to get somebody who doesn't feel good eating meat to eat meat. He has to he has to be accountable to his own conscience. So he's, he's insisting for the church on diversity, on differences. He insists that the differences remain, not just that he that they should be tolerated, but that they should stay there. And that we should be united by the simple message of the gospel. Right. But but that's because the world we can get we can make people conform okay if you go to a cult or whatever and we've talked about this i don't want to keep picking on people so i won't okay <laughs> but if you go to a cult what you'll see is everybody dresses the same okay and and we want that we like that it, most fundamentalist churches will have an unwritten dress code especially for females you know, we'll call it modesty, but it really has a lot to do with jealousy and competition among women oftentimes that, you know, um, so, but I don't, I don't really get into that. And, and certainly every individual should be aware of themselves and vanity should be something. It just isn't, it doesn't operate in concert with the gospel. Okay. But let's say you go to a tribal culture where women have never wear, worn a top, that the idea of having wearing something on your upper body if you're a woman is just completely foreign. It's like if you told somebody they needed to wear socks on their ears, okay, uh, to be modest. Uh, to them, that would be really odd. Now, if you went into that culture and you insisted that the women cover their upper bodies um, because of your hang-up or whatever, and you'd say, look, you can't go to this church unless you put a shirt on or whatever, aren't we beginning to then make people conform to a Western idea of what it means to be modest. See, the, the the idea of modesty is different there. So a woman who, maybe she comes in, now she's wearing this fancy blouse. Well then, now she's the one being noticed, right? She's the center of attention. Maybe she's becoming vain. And so it all is turned upside down. The prescriptions just don't work across cultures. And as this message is meant to go around the world and it is meant to give birth to unique expressions of the gospel in various cultures, and that every one of us should accept one another across those divides, then what the miracle is, is where you have a body of people who are very different from one another and yet share all of this mutual respect. That's why James is so upset in James 2, where he says, you have a poor person come in, you have them sit at your foot, you have a rich person in, you put them in a, you know, that, that we, that the visible kingdom of God expressed in the church should be a room full of people who are defying the socioeconomic barriers but remaining in them. So Paul doesn't say free all your slaves and all of this. He's not saying change these designations. He's saying that as as a body in Christ that those things become subordinate to the message as you receive one another in love. But we can only do that if we have a standard that we can all agree on. And what's the, the genius of God is that our standard isn't prescriptive law because we'll never agree on that. If I were to tell you, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what does that mean? What if I, you know, can I brush my teeth? Can I switch a light on? If I'm cold, can I carry in some firewood? No, uh, you know, we have a very clear story about that. No, don't do that. Right. Um, we begin to, well, maybe it's just the spirit of it. What if I feel, I feel rested. So if I'm doing something like woodworking helps me relax. So I'm going to go and do woodworking because it helps me relax. And now I'm following the spirit of Sabbath. See how we can begin as soon as there's one prescriptive rule, we can immediately divide over it. And that's why there are none. 
that the gospel is a message about something that has happened. And so there's no room for vast disagreement on the essence of what has happened. Has Christ died? Has he risen again? If you disagree with that, well, that's okay. You're not in. You're not part of us. It's okay. We love you, but you're not part of this group. Do you agree with it? Well, then come on in and let's not fight about the rest. You know, now you go and, and you foreclose on a widow, right? I'm going to say, well, did, does that, is that in concert with the fact that you've been received mercy? Oh yeah, and it, you can try to justify it, but all of us know it's not. Right? So you're describing a situation where in church, uh, one person is holding another person accountable for their right. actions, and the standard that they're using is the gospel. Right. Say it again. How did you, in that illustration, rely upon the gospel as a standard for mm-hmm. behavior? Yeah. Well, I, I said that we receive grace and mercy. So somebody who has the right, they're entitled to something. Um, and then there's somebody who is in need but doesn't have the means to pay their own way. So if you, if I say I'm a recipient of this grace and mercy through the gospel, and then I go and say I have a sister in Christ who's single mom or whatever, and she can't pay her rent, and I throw her out because I've got somebody else that wants to move in. And you have a legal right to do so. I have, yeah, I have a legal right to do so. Um, at the same time, we can all agree that's greedy, it's covetous, it's out of harmony with the gospel message. Who, it, a gospel message about Jesus who had a legal right to uh, cast us out. Right. Who was entitled to every, who had every right. Right. But who humbled himself and, and gave himself for mm-hmm. others, for sure. their welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's our pattern of teaching that's our standard that we follow and we apply that in the situations of our life sure and i mean there may be times when someone's being taken advantage of or whatever say the landlord has um this person has moved in they feigned interest in the gospel they are actually a freeloader they've got various addictions they've actually had the money and stuff like that but they've decided not to do it because they're using this guy's faith against him as a weapon or a means to take advantage of him well then maybe the shoe's on the other foot then we begin to turn to her and we say hey you know what is it that you're doing here you know don't you realize that it's incumbent on you to love your brother and to do to him what's fair because you're in this relationship with him and that you belong to him. And when you take from him, you're taking from all of us and you're taking really from yourself and you're you know, defrauding yourself of the joy of this kingdom. And so now we, we turn to her and we encourage her, right? And if she doesn't listen, then maybe he is right in his rights to foreclose on her, that there's not some sort of hard and fast, never foreclose on a single mother who's living in your apartment but there is this question that we have to run everything through this grid of the gospel and ask, you know, is this in harmony? Is this concert in concert with the message? There are gray areas. There are times when we can say, hey, man, I'm concerned about this. You know, it's, it's you and God. But, but from where I'm sitting, I don't see it. And maybe there are people who are a lot more mature and elders and stuff. And they're like, dude, we need you to not do this. This just isn't good for the kingdom. It just doesn't, it doesn't represent the kingdom well. Uh, how about we take up and, and we pay the difference for you? And so the church comes on and they say, we know you could get another 500 a month from than what you're getting from this lady. But, and we're so thankful that you've given her a place. And, um, and the four of us, we, we just want to give 125 each a month to you. And, uh, and that would be our joy to do that. And boom, it's solved, right? And this kingdom just moves forward. Um, and so that's, that's it, but there's no need for a prescriptive, never do this, always do that. When it comes to lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's like, why are you guys suing each other, right? And he, and he, and he discourages it. He doesn't say never sue each other or go to hell. He, he brings up these truths of the gospel. Don't you know we'll judge angels? Is there no one among you who can settle this matter within the church? Okay, so that's his first line of defense. But then he says, but really, you should just take the hit if it comes to it. Because Jesus, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor. Say, if your life is about faith, if it's about the gospel, 
then being defrauded is such a trivial issue compared to representing Jesus, compared to living in concert with the gospel. So he's saying, look, first thing is, I know, and he knew they were carnal, they weren't quite mature yet, that suggesting that they would be defrauded was probably a bit much beyond their faith. And so he's saying, you guys get together and, and, and arbitrate this among yourselves. But that's really not the most, the purest form of gospel conformity would be accept, accept the wrong. Um, and you know, if, if it comes to it. So um, in that we can see Jesus this accepted nuance. the wrong. Right, and yeah. Gave us an example to follow of not just accepting the wrong, but accepting the wrong in faith that right. God will take care of you. Of course. Which God took care of Jesus. Right. God will take care of me. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's the pattern of teaching again applied to another instance. Exactly. And so that allows us to be diverse, but it also calls us to this consistency that we all have the same smell. <laughs> so we're talking about the Bible uh, versus the gospel. Mm -hmm. Which is it? Which is our final authority? Uh, the doctrinal statements of evangelical institutions of all shapes and sizes. They say that the Bible or the New Testament is our final authority on matters of faith and practice. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is actually it's the gospel that is our final authority Yes. on matters of faith and practice. True. The Bible divides, actually, but the gospel unifies. It does. Yeah. I mean, Ephesians 2, one of the reasons that, uh, according to Paul, that God removed the Mosaic Covenant was to allow the two to become one. We read that in Ephesians 2.14 that he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law. What causes hostility between people religiously? Is it not sacred texts? <laughs> you know, um, that, that probably sounds challenging. But Paul seems to be suggesting that if he turns to the Jews and says, you know, all you're learning about the Torah is just, it doesn't count for, it doesn't give you any sort of cred with God. It's a blessing to you that you get the backstory, but it doesn't mean you're better than these other people who just heard this. Um, and so having removed that in the temple in Israel at the time, there was this low wall called a balustrade that separated the court of the Jews from the court of the Gentiles. On the outside of it, written in Greek, was this inscription that said, if you cross this, you are responsible for your own death. So there's this, isn't, doesn't that suggest a hostility? If you come in here, I'll kill you, right? Uh, and Paul is saying, Look, that stood there, and that's fine, but it kept people apart. And and isn't God's house supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations? That's what Jesus said, and he's quoting, I think, the psalm, and I'll look it up later. But anyway, um, but there's this this song of devotion to God that says, your house, you know, your house is a house of prayer for all nations. So then to create these walls, these barriers and create second class citizens, how, how can you do that? Uh, and the only way to remove that is to remove all the proscriptions and stuff like that, that would keep people away. Now, if we then begin to take the New Testament as the letter haven't we begun to build up again what was torn down? And maybe that's rhetorical. You guys feel that. Is there a way that it's not? What would maybe what would somebody say? Well, some people would say, well, we aren't requiring everyone to agree with us on every point uh, of interpretation of the New Testament, but we are requiring people to look to the New Testament for the answers to their questions about how to live their lives. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But don't we all have an idea about what it says about how we should live our lives? So if I look at the, the New Testament and it says women should keep their heads covered 
Yeah. I'm like, well, seems kind of clear to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, wife. Yeah. Got to cover your head now. Right. I don't know why, but it's just what it says. Right. And that, that becomes culturally divisive, doesn't it? In that you go to cultures that are very progressive, maybe even matriarchal, and you say, yeah, welcome, come on in. By the way, you need to completely upend your concept of society. And women now need to take a subservient role and wear some quaint niche garment that doesn't fit your society. And, uh, and across the world, every Christian woman needs to wear a beanie cap on her head and, um, you know, Keds tennis shoes and a skirt and a polo shirt across the world. You can recognize a Christian woman by this. Does that sound like what we've been talking about? You know, um, yeah, so that, that becomes divisive. And then we go to the trouble. We say, well, we don't want to let go of this notion that we have to follow the New Testament. So we then go into all this sophistry to explain away that teaching. Because, you know, we have to come up with, obviously that's not going to work in our society. And we know, you know, people are leaving the church. And if we just say, well, we're going to take a hardline stance and no woman can pray unless she covers her head. And, um, now people start to go, no, wait, that's nuts. You know, um, they kind of have a sense that it's crazy to do that. And, and so we say, okay, well, well, let's look at it again. The word custom is used there. So obviously it's a custom and man, that's not what that's saying. <laughs> but even if it were that we're just not that good at interpreting the Bible, I'll be, I'll be frank. It's, it was written in a foreign language that's now dead to people who were, we can't even begin to fathom how different their lives were from ours, their culture, their assumptions, their day to day. And, and so it was written to them in a part of the world that's far removed from us and had no nothing in common with our history um, by a person who has nothing in common with us. And then um, we translated it and we've uh, we try to interpret it back out of a different language. Guess what? It doesn't work. We just we're never going to interpret the Bible correctly in every way, which is why the Quran exists. Um, because Muhammad's like, man, these guys can't get their act together. These people say they're reading the same book, but they do not have it together. What they need is one unified voice speaking in one language and um, that will require everybody to see it the same. Um, around the world, that's the kind of a critique of Biblicism, and it's a legitimate critique of Biblicism that we can't follow this book that's been collected and compiled and some books have been excluded and some have been included and so it's been canonized and then it's been translated and retranslated and updated and interpreted and after all of this how could we ever assume that we have complete conformity Mastery. to what it's teaching yeah and if so, we can't say that why does it matter oh so you and one of the points i think you're making and that you make in your book is that um, hey nathan you have a book too about the book um not really yeah <laughs> yeah go on record about that yeah okay so the uh the the we follow we the various uh traditions of christianity are mm -hmm. are attempts to follow they claim to be attempts to follow the bible but what they actually are is um, authority structures around a certain interpretation of the yeah. Bible. Yeah. And so um, we don't really follow the Bible. We follow an interpretation. That's of, really what we Bible. see is is oftentimes uh, within you know Protestant movement we see these gifted leaders, teachers, you know, rise up and really kind of draw a crowd around their teaching which is a lot of times, they, they can be very gifted teachers, but it, it's a particular interpretation or style of interpreting and communicating uh, the Bible. And so then people gather around that authority figure and they kind of take up that, that mantle of, okay, this is, you know, this is the, the style of interpreting the Bible that I, I really connect with. And then that becomes the new conformity. Well, and they don't say, I'm following this teacher. So, yeah, um, the problem is everybody says they're following the Bible. 
but they're really following a person because no two people see the Bible the same. So if you get more than two people together, we've all agreed to abdicate our own Bible study to somebody else. And I'm looking in the Quran because in the even in the sixth century, sixth and seventh century, as the Quran was being written, um, Muhammad was encountering people who countered his claims of having the one true written revelation with the teaching that the um, that the message is written on their hearts. So people were coming to Muhammad and saying, no, no, Muhammad, we, we, won't, we don't follow your written work. Mm-hmm. We follow the message that's written on our hearts. Right. Okay. Right. And, and so, you know, Muhammad was, was saying, your book isn't adequate, obviously, because you don't agree on it. Uh, you should just read what I'm writing, and then everyone can agree as Allah would wish. Right. Um, and their counter wasn't, no, our book is better. Our book is good. Um, their counter was, the book isn't the essence of our doctrine, dummy. All the way in the sixth century, they were saying it's not the book. Okay, quit doing that. So you're the people of the book, the people of the book. And they're like, we're not the people of the book. We're the people of the message. Uh, you know, and so you know, he says in um, the Cal Surah two eighty five b. He says, then is it only a part of the book that you believe in, and do you reject the rest? And so he's talking about these Christians who they eat pork. Right. And, and so their response in Surah 288, they say, Our hearts are wrappings which preserve Allah's word. We need no more. Nay, Allah's curse is on them for their blasphemy. Little is it they believe, he says. But, but notice what the common Christian response was, because these people were largely illiterates. And their response was, We don't need your book because our relationship with God isn't based on a book. And yet, would we say that today? Their counter to Muhammad is the same one that we need, that we need to have in the open marketplace of ideas. Because not only would Muslims critique the Christian Bible, but atheists, secularists will. And those critiques are valid in many cases. But to argue otherwise, to say, no, the Bible is reliable and all of that, is beside the point. That the Bible is here to show us the gospel. And if we have the gospel, and this is something we probably won't get to today, but um, the gospel gives us the means to then faithfully use the Bible, to faithfully understand the Bible. And all of these debates can go away while we retain the value of the scriptures. Uh, again, it's that, it's that paradox. It's just like we are becoming unified and diverse. The church should be becoming ever more united and ever more diverse. Um, and it grieves me. I'm just going to drop a pin here, I guess. It grieves me when Christian conservatives are seen as the ones who demonize wokeism, quote-unquote. Not because I think that this racial movement in America is entirely right in everything that they say, but I think that we should have been the ones leading the charge in multiculturalism from the beginning. That our churches should have been multicultural, that we should have been investing in the education of African-American youth because they were our spiritual nephews and nieces. That we have, that the Christian South has driven segregation for decades. And frankly, even if CRT and BLM and all of that is reactionary, we should take our licks because we have violated the gospel in the name of Jesus in that we have advocated for regressive policies that have kept African-American people down economically. Yes, there is personal choice in all of that, but personal choice 
is not the paramount value and virtue of the gospel kingdom. Meritorious action is not the gospel. Love for one another, care for one another. Grace, mercy, giving people what they don't deserve, um, pulling people in and up, and um, that there needs to be a, a repentance on the part of white Christian leaders to the point that you know, there are structures in our culture that are racially motivated, okay? Um, I was just reading about the drug war. I don't know how many people know that during the height of the drug war, um, I think it was Reagan that passed legislation, or Bush, that passed legislation that um, created mandatory prison sentencing of at least, I think it was at least five years for having just a few grams of crack cocaine or a hundred pounds of, of Coke powdered cocaine. Right. Now, right. You could do a right. lot more powdered cocaine than you could crack right uh, before you got in trouble. Right now. Why, who was using crack? This was black youth on the streets who was using powdered. This cocaine. is white uh, middle white, class. White, white middle color. Class. Can white anybody color. find a reason why that would be, why that disparity would be there? Other than race. I can't. There isn't. So if if any white Christian who is anti-woke or whatever you want to call it wants to come up and say that there are not racially motivated structures in our justice system, then bring your argument, right? But I think our default should be, dear God, please forgive us. And we should we should be we don't need reparations. We need to be the ones who are saying we we have failed. And like white blood cells in a body, we should be rushing into the breach, not solving social issues. We can't do that. But I'm talking about as a church asking, how have we perpetuated the divide? How have we failed to uh, lift each other up and to love our brother um, under the gospel? How have we failed to be a city on a hill in terms of multiculturalism? And we should grieve and repent publicly when the liberal world has to call us on the carpet for a failure in this regard. So that's my hot take. Hot takes by <laughs> Nathan Wilkerson. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. We're going to get to the next point uh, next week, the Bible as a ministry multi-tool. Uh, there's a teaser. What do we mean by that? You may have some response to make to us. You may want to email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks.